originally, we were going to be starting our series in Malachi this week, but I think I've said that the last few weeks, and so that's going to be pushed back one more week. Uh, so your homework for the final time will be to be reading and praying through Malachi, because next week we will be starting in Malachi, and I am, I am super excited about studying that book. In fact, I'll just save it for next week, because I'm really, really excited about us jumping into that. But I kind of wanted to, in light of making an announcement that, that we just did, I just wanted to make sure that we as a church, that we knew our hope is in God. Above anything else, that is where our hope is. And so this sermon is all about uh, just directing and focusing our hope on God. And so that's why the title today is Unending Hope in an Unchanging God. Our hope is not in the things of this world. Our hope is not in a man or an organization. Our hope is not in our bank account or anything else in creation. But our hope is in God. He's our anchor. He's eternal. He's unmovable. He's unchanging. And so the main point that I want us to see this morning from this text is that because God is immutable, we confidently hope in him and nothing else. And if that word immutable is like striking you going, I don't use that one often. We'll get to that. Uh, and so I think we'll all understand that by the end. But what I'd like you to do is go ahead and stand and we stand at the reading of God's word here. We do so because this is God's word inspired by him for the purpose of equipping and training us for every work of righteousness that he would call us to do. And so we are going to be in Psalm 102. We're going to read the entire Psalm, all 28 verses. And so if that is a little long, uh, you are more than welcome to sit if needed. But here we go, verse 1. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. For my days pass away like smoke and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and is withered. I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I'm like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I'm like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. All the day my enemy taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. For I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. Because of your indignation and anger, for you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is time to favor her. The appointed time has come for your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. Let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord, that he looked down upon his holy height. From heaven, the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem his praise when peoples gather together in kingdoms to worship the Lord. He has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. Oh, my God, I say, 
Take me not away in the midst of my days. You whose years endure throughout all generations. Of old, you laid the foundations of the earth. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Let's pray. Our Father, Father, as we dig into this psalm, Lord, I pray that we would see so clearly that our hope is in you. And I pray that we would see that you are unchanging, that you are immutable. And because of that, we can trust in you at all times, in all places, no matter what is taking place. That you are our hope, that nothing in all of creation rivals the hope that we have in you. Lord, I pray that no matter what condition our hearts are in this morning, no matter what we are going through, the pain, the trials, the hurts, the afflictions, that our souls would rejoice in the truth that, God, you are our hope. You are enthroned forever. So, God, may we know that truth. May we see that truth, and may we rejoice in it together. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. So very likely, this psalm takes place when Israel is in exile in Babylon. So in about 586, King Nebuchadnezzar came, and he destroyed Jerusalem, decimated the temple, and took uh, all the, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, took Judah into exile, and that was to last for 70 years. And so very likely, this is taking place during that time period, most likely towards the end of that period, as we'll see as we make our way through it. So the point is, is that we're... we're We're given a glimpse of one man here, and this man is representing really the nation. So his thoughts and his feelings and the things that he is going through, the misery that he describes in verses 3 through 11, are what everyone in Israel is is feeling at this moment. And so we're given into a window into, into an Israelite saying their world is becoming completely turned upside down. So what do you do when that happens, when everything you had and everything you own and everything you know is gone. And so the very first thing we see is that the psalmist cries out to God. And we can't miss this. So five times, these first two verses, he pleads for God, listen and answer. He says, hear my prayer. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. Like you can hear the desperation in his voice, you know, we, we see that he's needing God. He's clinging to God. He's desperate for God. And, and one thing, just we need to learn how to pray from the Psalms. So I encourage you, when you're reading through the Psalms, let that inform you how to pray. Like we don't come to God necessarily with clear, eloquent, articulate language at times. We can come to God in hurt in pain, in confusion. We can come to God with questions. We can come to God when our hearts are full of anxiety and our words are just slurring together. So we need to learn just how we come to pray right here from the psalm. So we see that this is what he's doing. He's 
turning to God, and he's in utter desperation. God, I need you. And then just to help us understand where he's at, that's what verses 3 through 11 do. They're going to describe his misery. So verse 3, his days are like smoke and his bones burn like a furnace. Verse 4, his heart hurts and withers. Verse 5, he's in so much misery he cannot eat and he's emaciated. Verses 6 and 7, there's this talk of of an owl and this lonely sparrow. So what we see is he feels like he's all alone in these unclean places, that there's no one there with him. Verse 8, his enemies taunt him. Verse 9, his food is his ashes and his drink is his tears. In verse 10, he says he knows that actually God is the one who stands behind all of his suffering. We'll talk about that more in a moment. So what we have, though, is when we look at this description, we have a man who's weak, he's miserable, he's in pain, he's lonely, he very much sees his mortality He feels like he's in absolute, total despair. In verse 11, he says, His days are like an evening shadow, and he withers like grass. He knows he's not going to live much longer. The hourglass of his life is coming to an end. And he feels, he feels frail. His finiteness is so tangible to him at this moment. And I, I wish I could say, this is totally abnormal. This is so incredibly rare. None of you will ever feel like this. In fact, when we go through the Bible, we never see this. This is, this is a rare occasion. But we know that's not true. All throughout the Psalms, men are crying out to God. Throughout the Bible, we see that Old Testament and New Testament. We live in a world that is struck by sin. Many of those in Ukraine you got to think about that. You probably feel pretty close to like this Israelite who's been uprooted from their home. He's in a foreign land now. He has no idea if they'll ever go back. We need to be praying for those in Ukraine. Everything they've known, everything they've had is just gone. It's missing. They have no clue if what they called normal will ever come again. Even those in Florida who have recently lost many of their things, if not all of their things, because of the hurricane, could feel very much like this. Sickness and trials and death and pain always seem to be just around the corner in this world, do they not? Just always seem to be around the corner. So what I want to do, I just want to pause for a moment, and I want to ask, have you ever felt this way? Maybe some of you here right now, and this is you. For whatever reason, this is you right now. Or maybe you know someone, and I promise you this, you do know someone who's felt like this. Now, there may be some of you who say, I've never felt like this, and praise God, um, that day may come. That day may come, but know this, there are those around you who do feel like this, often on, on a regular basis because of whatever trial they're going through. So as we walk through this, I just want you to think through not only how is this text meant to strengthen your hope and preparation for that day, but this text is meant to strengthen you so you know how to counsel and to encourage and to shepherd those who are in these sleepless nights of the dark nights of the soul. Maybe you're here today and you have immense health issues. Maybe you are in a difficult relationship that weighs on you at 
all times. Maybe you constantly experience hostility at work or at home. Maybe you wrestle with anxiety and depression. I mean, think about this. Have you ever felt like the psalmist that that your strength and life is beginning to fade and wither? Have you had those moments? Have you experienced the sleepless nights where your tears are your drink? I promise you, the more you know the church, the more you're involved with people, you see these things. Have you heard the inner voice within you whisper, there is no hope? There's no light at the end of the tunnel. No one hears hears you pray. No one cares. You're all alone. You're in perpetual darkness. Have you ever heard those lies just whispered into your head over and over and over? The question is like, what do you, what do you do? What do you do? If that's you, what do you do? And if you know someone, how do you, how do you shepherd them? How do you, how do you love them? You know that if the solution is for you to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, then too bad. That's just not going to happen. If you're supposed to look inward and muster up some type of strength, and there, there's no hope. So what do you do? And there's really, really good news for us in God's word. Because God's word is, is never silent on what we do in suffering. In fact, Psalm 102 is, is going to give us this instruction on how we look towards God. And all throughout the Psalms and all throughout the Bible, we see that no matter what situation we are in, God is our hope. And we can always look towards him. We can always turn towards him. There's always comfort. There's always grace. There's always mercy. There's always strength. And so what I want to do is I want to show six reasons from this Psalm why we have hope at all times. In the first five, we're going to go through relatively quickly. I would love to spend more time on each of them, but it's number six that's going to create the bedrock for everything on why we have hope in God. But we'll, we'll go through them. Number one, the psalmist's hope in God is because God is on his throne. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, but you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout the generations. Verse 12 is like a, a ray of light bursting through the darkness. God's on his throne. His rule is eternal, and this truth is everywhere in Scripture. Lamentations, which lamentations, lament, is written after Jerusalem has been destroyed and Israel is in exile in Babylon. In chapter 5, verse 19, we read, But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Psalm 29.10, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. And if we go to the book of Revelation, it's all about the fact that God rules. In Revelation chapter 4, we see that all of the heavenly hosts are surrounding the throne and they're crying out, worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. From cover to cover of the Bible, we see God is on his throne. He rules. Now think about this. The psalmist takes comfort that God is on his throne in the midst of his suffering. 
The Bible never hesitates in showing that God is sovereign over all of creation, even suffering. It never hesitates over that. It just presents it, this is true. So how is this good? I mean, if God is in control and on his throne, then why is he not doing something? How do I hold these two truths together at the same time? What we see is all throughout the storyline of the Bible that our God is so great and so powerful that he uses what appears foolish. He uses you and me, weak, finite, frail people, and he often uses trials, pain, suffering, other things that would be considered foolish as the means of accomplishing his great and grand purposes. And, and the best example that we have is really the cross of Jesus Christ, where God sends his son Jesus to the earth that he'd be born of a carpenter's son. He'd never travel very far, and he'd eventually be crucified naked on a cross. And it's through that, which, which appears absolutely foolish and absurd, it's through that act that God provides forgiveness of sins and everlasting life for all who will believe in his son Jesus Christ. And it's through the cross of Jesus, that God displays his glory, his majesty, his strength, his grace, his mercy. It's through that which appears absolutely weak and foolish through pain and suffering that God is magnified in all of creation. Because when God uses the weak and the foolish things like you and me and pain and trials and sufferings, it shows that it's only his power, it's only his glory that's at work in those moments. And he's the only one worthy of all glory and honor. And so whatever you are going through, we must remind ourselves God is on his throne. Your trials, your suffering, they never catch God off guard. And he promises that he uses them for our good. That's what Romans 8, 28, one of our favorite verses is. We need to embrace it for all that it is when it says, and we know that for those who love God, all things, all pain, all trials, all sufferings, all these things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So what, what he's doing right now in this moment is he's aligning his feelings with the truth of God's word. That's huge right now. His feelings are over here. God's out of control. I'm just needing him to listen to me. I'm weak, I'm, I'm frail, and I'm desperate. And now he takes them and he aligns them with what he knows to be true of God. In order to align our feelings with the truth of who God is, we must know his word. We must know his word, for it's in his word we see who he is. We see his character. We see his strength and his grace and his mercy, his might his comfort, his love, his presence. And so if, if we go into trials and we don't have his word, we're going to be like a boat in the middle of the ocean with an out and anchor and just be tossed to and fro till eventually we're going to end up shipwrecked on the shore. God's given us his word so we would be in it, so we would know his character, we would know who he is. So when those trials come and the waves begin hitting us, and we experience the winds, that we would come back to the truth of God's word and we would align our heart and our feelings 
with who our God is at that moment. So that's where we start. God is on his throne. Number two, amen indeed. God is compassionate. Look at verse 13. God says he's going to arise and have pity on Zion. Now Zion represents the people of God. God, God's promise that Israel would be in exile for about 70 years, and then he would bring them out of Babylon. So very likely the time is coming to an end. So the psalmist is reminding him the truth of God's word. Mercy's coming. Mercy is coming. They're coming to an end. They will be going out of exile back into Jerusalem, where the temple will be rebuilt. And I want you to know this truth. God is for you. That's what he's remembering right now. God will give mercy. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then he promises that nothing will ever separate you from his love. Whether you are in exile or in the homeland, nothing separates you from his love. He promises that he will complete the work he began in you. We don't know if our suffering will end on this side of heaven or that side of heaven, but what we know is a day is coming, death will be swallowed up. That's the guarantee of the cross. Jesus died at the cross, defeating death. He removed its sting. And when he returns, death will be fully swallowed up. And you and I who believe in him will never experience pain, trials, death again. And until that day happens, he promises to give mercy and grace and strength every day to meet the trials, to meet the needs that you have of that day as we wait for him to return. We must remember that God is mercy. Number three, God's purposes do not change. Look at verse 15. It says, the nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. So I just want you to think about this. You're in exile. And and right now, you're saying, you're saying God's, God's on his throne, and all these nations are going to worship my God. I mean, right now, uh, we're defeated, the city is destroyed, and the temple is decimated, but everyone's going to fear this one God. Does that align with reality? Like, because God's not looking so good at this moment. It's like when you're down, like six touchdowns in the fourth quarter, and you're going, oh, but we got this. Do you? I, I, I'm not so sure, but that's where he's at. He's like, oh man, we're in exile and we're slaves right now to Babylon. Oh, but wait, a day is coming and you're all going to bow before this God. And what we see in verse 16, we read that he will bring them out of exile and Zion, the city of God, will be rebuilt. So, so again, what, what's happening here? The psalmist is trusting more in the truth of God's word than in the reality of his circumstances. Do you get that? So reality is we're defeated. The temple's decimated. The city's destroyed. That's reality. That's what I see. But then I have this truth in God's word that says not only are we going to be released, but a day is coming where God's glory will fill the earth, Habakkuk 2.14, and every nation will bow before this God. That's what faith is. Faith trusts in the invisible God more than in the visible world that we live in. Do you know that? And we can do this 
Because his purposes do not change. In fact, if we go to the end of the book, in Revelation 7, this is what we read. Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. This is John. He's given this vision. And he says, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Fulfillment right here of Psalm 102. A day is coming. Where God will return and the nations will bow before him. Does it look like that right now? Same reality that Israel is in. Doesn't look like it. But I have two things I can do. I can either trust in the reality of God's word over the visible reality. Or I trust in things that I see over than that which is true in God's word. And faith is always trusting in the truth of God's word. And we have 66 books that are given to us to show what it looks like to live by faith when we do that. We have the entire Old Testament stories of God's word where we see men and women who trusted in the invisible reality of God or the visible reality of their circumstances. And we see how God worked for them every single time. Just think about the Exodus. You go back to Israel. They're in Egypt. It looks pretty bad. Pharaoh's killing the babies. Everyone is enslaved. When Moses comes and is like, hey, let my people go, Pharaoh's like, we'll just make the work harder. So the visible reality of every Israelite is life is really hard. It just got worse. What do we do? Do we trust in all that we see, these pantheon of Egyptian gods and the might and the strength that they're displaying at every moment or will I believe in the word of this God? And what we see is that this God rains down plagues on all of Egypt, eventually completely wiping them out and destroying them in the Red Sea. Again, telling us, trust in the invisible reality of God over the visible reality of our circumstances. And we do that because God's purposes do not change. Number four, God hears our prayers. So verses 1 and 2, he's crying out. Verse 17, we have God hears the prayer of the destitute and does not despise our prayers. Isn't that good? Like I, just, I just want you to think about that. Whose prayers does he hear? Yeah, but, but whose? The prayers of the destitute. Like he's not like, hey, once you get your life cleaned up, then you come to me. Hey, get your side fixed up because I don't really want to handle your baggage. And once you got your side fixed, now call me and then we'll work together. I don't want you to make my team look bad. That's not the case at all. Our God is grace. He is power. He is love. He is mercy. So he says, cry to me. You can cry out to me because I will hear you and I will give grace. I will give mercy. I love Psalm 3, 4. It's one of my, my favorite psalms on prayer. He says, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. See, you just got to gotta get the picture here. We have David. He's, he's down here crying to God, and God's on his holy hill. So we need to think he, he's in heaven. There's a big distance. Cell phones don't go that far. And so David's down here. Infinite distance between him and God. 
At least that's what it feels like. So David cries out in the solace of wherever he's at, and God hears. God hears our prayers wherever you're at, and you cry out to God. He hears you. This is what Jesus said in John 15, verse 16. He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. There's such joy in there, such comfort in there, such rest in that. Just know, wherever you're at, you cry out to God, he hears you. So, when you hear the lies that Satan says, you are alone. No one cares. No one's listening. You take 66 books and 2,000 years of church history, and you say, yes, he does. Yes, he does. Hear and answers. There is always hope in the God who hears. Number five, God is worshiped by future generations. Verse 18, it says, let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. Who are those people yet to be created? I mean, we go straight to us. We're so, yeah, it's true, it's us. Like, like. But it's everyone after this generation. Do you get that? Like, we are these people he's talking about right here in every other generation that came after this generation. The psalmist is so confident. Just think about it. He's so confident. God is going to ask, he says, write it down. Write, write this prayer down. I want you to write it down. I'm going to say, God, I need you to act. I need you to bring us out of Babylon, bring us back to Zion, rebuild everything, write it down. It's going to happen. And, and, then, and then we're going to have it written down. So when it does happen, we'll be like, see, God's faithful. How amazing is that? The whole Bible is written as a testimony of God's goodness so we would know him, love him, and trust him. And so in essence, these first five truths, they all are directing us back to God's word. And believe in the promises of his word. Believe in who God is. Believe in what he has told us. But this is where we need to ask a question. How does the psalmist know that God's going to continue to hear our prayers and be faithful to answer? Like, how does the psalmist know that God hasn't changed his purposes or won't change his purposes? What, what if God gets tired of giving mercy? What if he says, I helped you out before, I'm, I'm just not going to do it anymore? Or, or what if he says, um, what's in it for me? Or, or how does the psalmist know that, that God will stay on his throne? Like Verse 12 is like this ray of light bursting through the darkness. But what if God is like Prince Harry, who abdicated his throne? He's like, you know, I'm done with that. So in essence, we're asking, what if God changes? I mean, you change, I change. Is it really hard to imagine that God might change? I mean, if he changes, how do I know he's not going to change in character and his purposes and his promises? So that's what brings us to the next point where we'll spend the rest of our time. And we're going to look at the immutability of God, which simply means God does not change. 
And we, we, could, we could spend hours here because this is a truth that is so incredibly beautiful. Um, but we're just going to dig in and say what we can here. Psalm 102, look at verse 25. He says, of old you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. So, like, wrap your head around this. This, this is what he's doing. The author, he's just referred to the most stable things in all of creation. It's like the, the ground that we stand on, the foundations of the earth, and the heavens and the stars, pretty stable stuff. You're not really going anywhere. And he says, they're really not as permanent as you think. In fact, think of them like a robe or like a dirty shirt. One day they're going to be just taken off. They're going to be changed. So what he says is these great immovable parts of creation are not so great. They're not so permanent. They will perish. So the question is, is what's more permanent than the earth that we stand on and the skies that we look at? What's more permanent than that? Verse 27, he says, but you are the same and your years have no end. So think about it. He's, he's eternal. His years have no end, and he's immutable. He does not change. Now, we'll see this truth all throughout Scripture. Like in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. This is why you got to read Malachi. We'll be there next week. He says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Or think about Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Listen, the mutability of God is one of the central attributes that make God God. If you have a God, he's immutable. That's what it is to be God. This is what Joel Beakey said, theologian. He said, now you might be thinking, the prospect of never changing would be horrible. For it would trap us in our limited, imperfect lives. But think about this. But God dwells in infinite, eternal, perfect fullness of life. Or another theologian said, the mutability, the mutable life of God is absolutely perfect and absolutely blessed. So what I want to do is just take a moment and go, okay, what does it mean that he's, what does it mean that he's beautiful? Why is this so, what does it mean that he's mutable? Get these words confused in my head. Why is it so beautiful and why do we need to understand this? So this is one of those attributes that clearly distinguishes creator and creature. We always have to hold that distinction. There's a creator and there's creature. There's an infinite distance between these. Have you ever read a biography? What's, your, what's the last biography you read? Anyone remember? Really? None this summer? John Newton. All right. Good Christian answer. <laughs> Anyone else? Frederick Douglass. Frederick Russell Burnham, don't even know who that one is. Um, I read Martin Lloyd-Jones this last summer as I'm wrestling through with things. And so I read, I read about his parents. I read about his home life. I read about the circumstances that shaped his life. I read about people who influenced him. I read about how he changed and grew in his theology. I mean, biographies are great because they, they show the, how people evolve. They show the becoming of someone, Right? But God doesn't change, thus he doesn't become. He is. Do you get that? Like a biography is showing what influenced him, 
that he changed, but God's not influenced. He doesn't change. There's nothing in all creation that changes him. He never has a new idea. He never learns anything. Like when you pray, he's not going, I'm so glad you brought this to my attention. He's never watching the world going, I had no idea that that was going to turn out that way. God's eternal. He's infinite in his perfect wisdom and righteousness. For him to change in any degree would mean that he would either become more perfect or become less perfect. Either way, he was not worthy of all worship, and he is not worthy of all worship. But if he's absolutely, infinitely perfect and blessed in every way, then he does not change. And the revelation of God in his Bible shows that God does not change, he does not adapt, but he is sovereign over creation. He is wisdom, he is power, he is grace, he is mercy, he is righteous, he is just he is unchanging. It's a big difference between saying he's merciful and he's mercy. You see the difference? You're merciful. Sometimes. Maybe. God's mercy. Everything he does is mercy. God is grace. Everything he does is gracious. God is love. He is love. He's not loving like, well, sometimes I'm loving, sometimes I'm not loving. Everything he does is love. William Plummer said this, Many causes make human plans and purposes feeble and uncertain. Infinite perfections make God's plans and counsels immutable and infallible. For God to be infinitely perfect and righteous is for him to be immutable. The mutability of God is what guarantees that he will never abdicate his throne. So verse 12, you're on your throne and you'll always stay on your throne. You'll never get off your throne. He rules, he's sovereign, never will there be one that's over him. Never will he remove himself or be removed from his throne. He will not alter his promises or purposes. His character is perfect in every way and will never change to the slightest degree to the left or to the right. It's because God is immutable that the author has great hope in his circumstances. He knows God will act. He knows that God will continue to be faithful. The promise that God gave to Abraham, he will continue to fulfill. He will work for the good of his people. He will save them. He knows that he can record the great acts of God so that we, 2,500 years later, could read them and trust in them because God does not change. This wasn't true of him 2,500 years ago, but now we need a little update. Did he change? How are things different with God? How he's doing this week? What we read 2,500 years ago is who God is and how he acts today as well. It's because God is immutable that we can trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. Do you realize that? It's because of his immutability that we have absolute confidence in our salvation. No one will be denied access to heaven when they come before God and he says, I changed my mind. It's not through Jesus. Yeah, I I, I changed that. I, I decided to alter my promise and my entire plan from before creation to now. It's no longer Jesus. You believed in the wrong name. It's because God is immutable that we know if we believe in Jesus Christ, we are saved. Because there's no other name under heaven 
which God says we will be saved by. It's because God is immutable. We know the church will persevere to the end. This is what Greg Nichols writes. He says, the church will never perish. Persecution will never destroy it. Temptation will never overwhelm it. And the even though the enemies will strive in vain. God has decreed its preservation and victory. It's because God is immutable. The mission of the church doesn't change. Not only do we have confidence in our own salvation, we have confidence when we go tell others about Jesus that it's in the name of Jesus that there is hope and salvation. There is no other means. Because God will not at some other point say, no longer is it by grace through faith in Jesus. It's because God is immutable that throughout Scripture, he's compared to a rock. Have you ever thought about that? Think about Psalm 18, verse 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my God in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Because God is immutable, unchanging like a rock, that we can come to him and he's our fortress protecting us. In fact, these verses, 25, 26, and 27 in Psalm 102, are actually fulfilled in Jesus Christ and what we read in Hebrews chapter 1. That Jesus is the rock of our salvation. He is our savior. He is our fortress. He is our deliverer. He's the one we can trust in. One Puritan said this, lean too much on man and you'll find a broken reed. Lean upon the Lord, and you'll find a rock. Isn't that incredible? Because he's unchanging. He is who he is. In fact, his very name, I am, I be, is that he is who he is, and he's unchanging. It's because God is immutable, we can come back and trust in his word. There's so many verses we could look at this. Here's one, Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades. But you know the rest of it? The word of our God will stand forever. Why? Because God doesn't change. And thus his word will never be altered, will never be changed, will never be updated. Which means every time you open up God's word, you're standing on solid ground. Because you're, you are encouraging, you're coming in, to the infinitely perfect, eternally unchanging God. This is why the psalmist, in absolute despair, at least visibly, has, un, has unending hope because he trusts in a God who's unchanging. He knows he'll fulfill his promises. He knows he'll fulfill his word. He knows he hears our prayers. He knows that he never changes. John Calvin said, we ought, therefore, to seek stability nowhere else but God. If you've trusted in Christ, then there is hope. There's always hope in Christ. So no matter what it is that we're facing, whether it's health, whether it's financial, whether it's relational, emotional, or physical, God is our hope. He is grace. He is mercy. He is the very strength that we need. This is what Arthur Pink, theologian, said. He said, here is solid comfort. Human nature cannot be relied upon, but God can. However unstable I may be, however fickle my friends may prove, God changes not. 
if we get this truth, then you have hope at all times. His character never changes. So no matter what you're going through at home, no matter a difficult marriage, no matter health, we come to God confident that he hears us, confident that he answers, confident that he works in us for our good and his glory. I want to encourage you, we learn about this in his word. And it's as we align ourselves with God's word every day, we're prepared for the trials that come around the corner, and they come around the corner, right? If you, if you don't know that, ask someone. They'll be like, well, look around the corner. One's coming. <laughs> like, you're coming. They're always coming. But when we know this truth, then we are fortified. We have the anchor of God as our hope. So no matter what the wave is, no matter what the wind is, we're going through with confident hope in God. That doesn't mean it's easy, but that does mean we know God is in control. It does mean we know how it all turns out. Whether on this side of heaven or on that side of heaven, we know how it all turns out. That God will be on his throne and the nations will be before him, worshiping him, and we will be included in that because we have called out on the name of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to pray, the team is going to come up, and we will take communion together where we celebrate the salvation we have in Jesus Christ as our hope. Father, we come to you now, and Father, we just we thank you that you are our hope, and you're unchanging. Oh God, I pray we don't dismiss that truth, I pray we don't trivialize it, I pray we don't forget it, but... <laughs> God, ingrain this truth deep within the recesses of our heart and our soul and our mind. And we would know that because you are infinitely perfect, blessed in every way, you are immutable. There's no, no, there's no improvement that you need. There's no knowledge that you need. You are never influenced. You are grace. You are mercy. You are strength. And God, you promise that all those who call upon your son, Jesus Christ, are saved and are guaranteed to dwell with you forever in the new heavens and new earth. And we praise you for that. And God, bless this time as we now take communion. And we specifically think of your son, Jesus Christ, who it was planned before creation that he would come so that he would die on a cross so we would believe in him and have everlasting life with you. In your name, Jesus, amen.